Okay, let's go ahead and get out our Bibles. Let's turn to the Gospel of John together. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. You're also welcome to take that home with you and read it and study it. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm dealing with a little bit of sinus infection, so bear with me this morning. In the year 1895, Alfred Nobel founded what would come to be known as the Nobel Prize. The prize is actually five separate prizes that, according to Alfred Nobel's will of 1895, are to be awarded to, quote, those who, during the preceding year, have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind in the areas of physics, chemistry, physiology or medicine, literature, and peace. Now, 30 years prior to the establishment of this prize, Alfred Nobel was made famous and quite rich for something very unaltruistic, the invention of dynamite. Although Alfred's interest in dynamite was initially oriented towards having uh, an explosive that was safe and that could be handled and transported without any issues. It was also thought to be something that could be used for mining and blasting and tunnel cutting. His family business soon began to include and then become heavily invested in munitions and armament factories. Yes, the founder of the Nobel Peace Prize was also the inventor and the manufacturer of an explosive that has killed untold millions of human beings. But the irony thickens. Alfred Nobel was not a warmonger. Quite the opposite, in fact. He was a stringent, he was an ardent pacifist. And like most pacifists, he was on the strong side of naive, saying things like this. My dynamite will sooner lead to peace than a thousand world conventions. As soon as men will find that in one instant whole armies can be utterly destroyed by this thing, they surely will abide by golden peace. Although Alfred would not live to see just how wrong he was about dynamite, the withering attacks from the hordes of critics who were constantly attacking him for his invention and for his production of the weapon, they began to wear heavy on him towards the end of his life, particularly after one case of mistaken identity. In the year 1888, one of Alfred's brothers, while away in France, died. A French newspaper mistakenly thought that Alfred had died and not his brother, and so they wrote up an obituary for Alfred Nobel. This was the withering title of that obituary. The merchant of death is dead. Alfred read this obituary about himself. He saw what the world would think about his life after he would pass away, and it led him to consider what kind of legacy he was going to leave this world. And by the end of his life, his conscience was so burdened by the matter that he established in his will what has come to be known as the Nobel Prize. He wanted to give all his money away in order to establish a legacy for himself in the memory of the populace, all because of a case of mistaken identity. This morning's text begins with another case, a famous case of mistaken identity, the case of John the Baptist, Jesus of Nazareth, and the Messiah of Israel. Let's read about it for ourselves, starting in John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then, are, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. 
So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we need your help to see. Help us not to be like the unbelieving Jews who come investigating who have the Messiah in their midst, but who don't know it, who who don't realize it. Help us to see your Son as he is here in our presence through this word. Help us to listen to him and to be forever changed by him. We pray this in his name, the name above all names. Amen. Before Jesus began his ministry, there was a man named John the Baptist. We've talked about him a few times already. If you remember a few weeks ago, we noted that John's whole ministry has to do with being a witness to Jesus. In case you forgot, let's just turn back to to chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, where John, the writer of this gospel, who's not the same John as John the Baptist, right? I know it can be kind of confusing, but John the gospel writer is telling us about John the Baptist, and he says this in verse 6, There was a man who was sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So this is John's whole deal. He's not supposed to say, look at me. He's supposed to point away from himself and point to Jesus and say, look at him and believe him. That's John's whole ministry. Now, John knew this about himself. He was not naive. He understood his own role and identity. But that doesn't mean that everyone else understood that about John. When John first shows up on the scene, he's he's showing up like a wild man. If if you read the other Gospels, you you see he shows up on the scene. He's eating honey, and he's eating locusts. He's he's in the wilderness. He's covered in camel fur. And he is just preaching his guts up. He's calling everyone everywhere to repent. Turn now, repent, because the axe is at the root. God's wrath is coming for you. And so by the time Jesus begins his ministry, John has become sort of a religious rock star in Israel. Right? He's made a lot of people very happy. And he's also made a lot of people very mad. And he's also made a lot of people very nervous. He's made the Romans nervous because they don't like it whenever another messianic figure starts to rise up and gets the Jewish population stirred up. Oh no, is there going to be another Jewish uprising? Are we going to have to go in and and put this down? Are we going to have to send our armies over there and, and quell that? But the Jews don't like it either. 
They don't like it because any time a figure like this rises up and, and captures the popular imagination of Israel, they have to deal with the fallout of the disappointment of yet another false messiah. It's a mess for everyone involved. And so, although a lot of people are happy about John and they readily receive his ministry, a lot of people are not too excited about what he's doing. And his ministry was having such a significant impact in Israel that people were thinking he might be the one. He might be the Messiah. He might be the Christ. Now, you're thinking, Sean, what, what is Christ? What is the Messiah? Two words kind of mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one. Specifically, Jews would have thought, oh, this is the anointed king who's going to come back and rescue us, not only from sin and death, but also from the Roman king who's conquered us, the emperor, he's going to be the one to come and finally liberate us. This Messiah, this Christ, he's going to be the greater Moses. He's going to be the better David. He's going to be the one to finally lead us back into glory. So uh, just remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, so there's not like Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Joseph and Mary Christ, right? That, that, that's not their address, okay? Uh, Christ refers to a title, and so, as, as John's popularity grows and as his ministry takes off in Israel, there's rumblings. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one. I already noted, uh, this makes the religious elite nervous. So in verse 19 and in verse 24 of this morning's text, we see how they respond. Look at, look at verse 19. <coughs> And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now look over uh, to verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. And then they continue to ask him more questions. So what you see happening here is the Sanhedrin. In verse 24, when it refers to the Pharisees, it's referring to the Sanhedrin, kind of the, the group of the head honchos, all the, the big guys, those who are in charge, they send this delegation of what we see in verse 19 of Levites and priests. They send them from Jerusalem to investigate. You can see pretty quickly that John the Baptist, he's kind of on trial here, right? He's kind of on trial. And this is a big deal. This delegation it's not just, you know, Ricky and Dicky and Timmy and Tommy and Jimmy and Johnny from down the block. The Sanhedrin got these guys together in Jerusalem. Now, see, because you're not a room full of Jews, that doesn't, there's not a ooh, right? Like nobody is kind of shaking in their seats. But if you were a room full of Jews, you would have thought, from Jerusalem? Oh, no. They're sending people down from corporate, <laughs> from HQ. This is a really big deal. And they begin their investigation, as told to us by John, very simply with one question. Who are you? Now, John doesn't waste any time. He knows what they're asking. He knows what they're thinking. He's heard the buzz around town. He keeps his ear to these streets in Jerusalem, okay? He knows right out the gate that they think that he might think that he's the Messiah. And so he just puts that to rest. And he says, I am not the Christ. The investigation continues. You can just kind of follow along in the text, right? The investigation continues. They say, well, who are you then? Are you Elijah? And the Jews would have thought like Elijah was the guy who would come before the guy, right? And he says, no, I'm not that. And we could explore that a little bit more, but we're not going to this morning because there's a sense in which he is Elijah and he doesn't even understand that about himself. And then they go, are you the prophet? Uh, that's a, a prophet that the Jews were thinking about from Deuteronomy. They kind of had some confusion about that. But basically what they're doing is they're going through their checklist. All right, we got some important people we're, we're expecting to come and like fix stuff. So if you're not the Christ and if you're not Elijah and if you're not the prophet, well then who are you? Look at verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. 
We can't go back home empty-handed. We're the delegation from the corporate office. We can't go back to the higher-ups and be like, well, we know who he's not. Right? We have to be able to go back and say something affirmative, something positive about his identity. He's a fake. He's a fraud. He's a charlatan. Who knows? And then John answers them in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John here quotes himself, quotes Isaiah in reference to himself, saying that he is the forerunner. Now, if you don't know or if you don't remember who the forerunner is, a forerunner in the ancient world would have been someone who would, who would go out before the king and who would announce that the king was coming to town. He would go along the road and he would clear the path and he would make sure that there was nothing in the way. And then he would go into the city and he would be like, hey, get your mayor, get your city council, get everyone ready because the king is coming to town. And John says, that's who I am. John is quoting Isaiah 40 here. Let's just put a pin in John chapter 1. Let's go back to Isaiah 40 real quick. Starting in verse 1, you can see the context of this chapter, which we read together this morning. The context is comfort, comfort to the people of God. What Isaiah is doing here is he's speaking a word of hope to the people of Israel. Now, this is a pretty big deal because if you've made your way through the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, then you would have seen that God is just really beating One drum note for 39 chapters, you're in trouble. I'm going to discipline you. I love you, but you've been rebelling against me, so I'm going to put you into exile, and it's going to be really tough. But here in chapter 40, the tone shifts. God says, not only am I going to discipline you, but I'm also going to restore you from that discipline. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to bring reconciliation after you have suffered for a little while. Here, Isaiah, channeling the voice of God, shows us the heart of God as he approaches his people like a father approaching a teenage son that has been disciplined severely. Right? God is saying to his people, listen, we're done. Okay? Yeah, you messed up. Yeah, it was bad. You shouldn't have done that. And you had to pay the price. You, you had to learn the lesson. That's the way life works, okay? But we're done now. The discipline's over. I love you. Let's fix this. Let's move on. That, that's what you see happening here at the beginning of chapter 40. And then starting in verse 3, we read about the forerunner. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. So you got terrain that kind of does this. And he's saying, no, God's power is going to lift up the valley and flatten the mountain so everything will be flat. So when God comes to bring comfort and peace, nothing will stand in his way. Not even the terrain. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And then notice the language here. This should make you think about the last couple of weeks we've spent in the Gospel of John. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Right? Who wrote this? John or Isaiah? Right? Oh, it's it's all in the same Bible because it's all telling us the same story. Right, okay. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Baptist knows that these Levites and priests know this verse. They better. It's super important. They know it. And he says, hey, you're asking me about the Messiah, and I'm here to tell you the king is coming. And I am the forerunner. I am the one who is crying out in the wilderness saying, get ready for the king. And if they understand if they have any clue about what John is saying here, it's not, it's not made obvious to us from the text. 
I mean, it seems like as you read this text that they just completely miss the point. They listen to John, and then they just continue. So go back, go back to John. <coughs> In verse 23, he says, I'm the guy who's preparing the way for the Messiah. Then in verse 25, they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John the Baptist just told them, the Christ is here. And they go, yeah, but why are you baptizing? It's a real lesson in missing the point. But here's the essence of their question. They're basically saying, if you're not anyone special, right? If you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, then what gives you the right to be out here doing what you're doing, right? It's kind of like the ancient Jewish version of, uh, excuse me, sir, do you have a permit for that? And then you can see John's response in verses 26 and 27. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. I like to think that this is just John's way of saying, man, you guys are dumb. That, that's what's happening here. He's saying something like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what you're asking me about. I'm just getting people wet. That's the first thing he points to. He says, I baptize with water. That's his answer to them. His answer to them is, you guys are asking if I have authority to do this, but you misunderstand the nature of what I'm doing. You think I'm doing something spectacular and amazing. I'm just getting people wet. This is just a ceremony where people do something on the outside, hopefully that's representing something on the inside. And then he says, but there's someone here even now who's doing a kind of baptism that's above my pay grade. There's someone here even now who's going to baptize in a way that you don't even have the authority to question their authority or his authority. And I hope we feel the weight of the irony of this, right? These guys are investigating John the Baptist to see if he is the Messiah. And John has told them not only is he not the Messiah, but that the Messiah is actually among them. And they don't get it. They cannot see it. This will be a recurring theme throughout John's gospel. Now, then in verse 27, uh, John says, hey, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandal. If that doesn't mean anything to you, you should know that in the ancient world, uh, untying the shoes was something that a slave would do. Even disciples who would sit under a, a, a prominent teacher like Jesus and his disciples, they were expected to do really anything and everything for that teacher, to serve him in every capacity. The only thing that was considered to be slightly beneath the dig dignity of disciples in the ancient world was untying the sandal. That was something that was even too much for them. That's something that only slaves do. And here, John the Baptist says, the person who's here is somebody that I'm not even worthy of being their slave. And it doesn't seem to register with them as he says this. And then in verse 29, as if it were written by a screenwriter straight out of Hollywood, right for dramatic effect, Jesus makes his first physical appearance in the Gospel of John. Look there. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then after this, as you just kind of walk through the text, you see a rapid fire affirmation of the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. John calls him the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Then we see a very, very dense retelling of the story of Jesus' baptism. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, really, this isn't even an account of the baptism of Jesus. That's not what John is trying to drive home here. The, the point of what John's whole book is, I'm trying to recount signs for you of what happened during Jesus' life and ministry so that you can read them, hear them, and believe in him. And there's not, there's not a sign that's much more significant 
about the identity of Jesus than the Holy Spirit descending on him. So that's why John just, he's not really concerned with giving us all the details. That's the main point he wants to drive home here. Now look at verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And right here, we get to the heart of the matter, the heart of this morning's text. If you really want to know the difference between John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah, you just look at their two different baptisms. John says it, the one who sent me to baptize with water, right? I'm pointing to the one who's here and can baptize you with the Spirit, Notice the contrast. If you would have been baptized by John, you would have either been a proselyte, that's someone who was a non-Jew who wanted to be a Jew, or you would have been a Jew who had, you know, uh, messed up, hadn't been living how you were supposed to, and you would have been convicted about that under his preaching, and you would have wanted to go and take a, a ceremonial bath, as it were. And this ceremonial bath, it just would have been a public way of you telling everyone around, hey, I'm a sinner. And I'm going to cleanse the outside of my body as a symbol of what I hope God is doing on the inside of my body, taking away my sins. This was a ritual and symbolic expression. That's good. But Jesus' baptism as the Messiah and not a mere prophet is a greater baptism than John's Messiah. Excuse me, than uh, John's baptism. So John's baptism cleans the outside of the cup. Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit cleanses within. John's baptism submerges the body in water. Jesus' baptism submerges the soul in the very life of God himself, in the Holy Spirit. John's baptism can get rid of dirt as an outward symbol, but Jesus' baptism is not symbolic in the slightest. His baptism is real. It's something that actually happens. He actually removes the stain and filth of our sin. As verse 29 says, he can actually take away the sins of the world. John knew that he couldn't do that. John's baptism is the baptism of a prophet. Remember what a prophet does. The the main thing that a prophet does is he tells the people of God, he goes, hey guys, you're messing up. Look at God's word. Believe this. Obey this. That's the main thing that a prophet does. Jesus is not a prophet. He is the word of God. He points to himself and says, believe me and obey me. And then finally in verse 34, we have the conclusion of the matter. This is the essence of John's ministry. Look there. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John has done his job. He has been a faithful witness. He's pointed away from himself and said, I'm not the light. And he has pointed to Jesus as the light and life and as the Messiah. And because he has done that, pointed away from himself and pointed to Jesus, he says, I have borne witness. Mission accomplished. So that's, that's the text for this morning. That's, that's what's happening in these verses. That's kind of all the theological stuff that's happening and the narrative stuff. Now let's drill down into application. But before we do that, I have got to get a tissue. <laughs> Hang tight, guys. Uh, note takers, go ahead and add an application section to your notes. Yeah. And uh, for those of you who are going to be listening to this audio later, I'm so sorry. Mm. Isley is my spirit animal. Mm. All right. Now, listen, we could take these truths that we've learned here together this morning, and we could apply them to our lives in a thousand different ways. A thousand different ways. But for this morning's sermon, I'm just going to make one application point for you. Just one. Here it is. You ready? 
You are not the Messiah. Your job as a Christian is to be like John the Baptist. Your job is to bear witness to Jesus by constantly pointing away from yourself and pointing to Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world. Now, in order to drive this application point home this morning, we're going to do something uh, a little unusual. We're going to do a little call and response, okay? So here's how that's going to work. I'm going to say, you are not the Messiah. And then you are going to respond. And when I say you, I mean you and you and you and you. Oh, you're a visitor? You. But what about me? I'm so cool. I don't do stuff like this. Even you. (laughs) Even you. You're going to do this. I'm going to say, you are not the Messiah. And then you are going to say, I am not the Messiah. You got it? All right, let's try it. You are not the Messiah. One of you guys didn't say it. I know it. I can feel it. That was pretty good, though. Anyway, so moving on here. You are not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. Man, good job, guys. All right, let me get this thing started off by preaching to myself. Sean, you are not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. Uh, This may sound a little silly. Even in this morning's service, you've heard me mispronounce words. How silly did that look? I had to walk off the podium and, and grab a tissue and blow my nose all weirdly into the microphone and in the middle of my sermon. And Yeah, I'm just, I'm not talented enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not powerful enough. I'm not handsome enough to, to wrestle with having too much of a Messiah complex. I mean, I'm the pastor of a church with less than 100 members, okay? Um, But having said that, this is a temptation that every pastor has to deal with. The temptation to see oneself, even if it's ever so slightly, in a messianic light. And part of the reason why pastors struggle with that is because people very often look to pastors as if they have some kind of magic pill. As if they have some kind of secret potion. As if they have access to the Gnostic truth that can finally fix whatever it is in your life that you just can't get a hang of. And I want to be clear, pastors do have truth for those who are hurting and confused and broken and low and lost. That's one of the reasons why we're pastors. But at the end of the day, a pastor has to know that he is not the Messiah. At the end of the day, a pastor can never tell any member of his congregation or the entire congregation, follow me, Period. To say, follow me, period, full stop, that's blasphemy. That's pride. That's vanity. Every pastor has to say with Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Because I am here just as an under-shepherd. I'm just here as a witness. My whole thing is, I'm going to say, yeah, I might be the one behind the podium, But when I get behind this podium, I should just be pointing away from myself and pointing to Jesus. You know, think about it like this. Your pastor is not the whiz kid in class who has all the answers. Your pastor is the kid in class who knows maybe what you don't know, that the answers are actually in the back of the book. And so you go, hey, man, what's the answer to number seven? Your pastor is the guy who goes, look in Colossians 3. It's very important that the members of Sixth Avenue understand this. I am not the Messiah. And man, did the Lord bring that home to me this week. I have it in my notes right here. I didn't change it. I am not the Messiah. And then I have Ask My Wife. I wrote that on a Wednesday. On Thursday, I came home and for an hour acted like the biggest turd in the world to my wife. I mean, it was just ridiculous. I was in a funk. I couldn't get out of it. I was unkind. I was uncharitable. Even, even when I went to go resolve the issue, I did it in a way that was like, really, that, that's how you're going to fix? That's how you're going to apologize? That's how you're going to repent? Not good, right? 
And it just, it seemed like the Lord was allowing that night to really drive home this point deep down into, into my heart that I am not the Christ. And I'm not the king of this church. I'm not the son of God. I'm not the lamb of God. I cannot take away your sins. But more than that, and you probably know that, but I should also tell you, I cannot fix your marriage. I cannot fix your kids. I cannot stop you from believing lies. I cannot keep you from going back to the world. I cannot fix your addiction. When you perceive a weakness in me, which you will, which you will nonstop, that shouldn't shake your faith. It shouldn't leave you wondering, ooh, did I join the right church or did I mess up? Should I have joined that other church down the road because their pastor doesn't seem like he would make that mistake? I don't mean a disqualifying mistake, right? A grievous mistake that no pastor should make. I'm just talking about when you see me as a human make a human mistake, it shouldn't unsettle you. You should just go, oh yeah, he's not the Messiah. And then you should move on with your day and then maybe pray for me and come and try to encourage me. Because being not the Messiah, I need encouragement. And that's true of Grant, my other elder in the church, that's true of other men who are aspiring to leadership in the church as well. Now let's talk about parenting. How appropriate for our first Sunday back in Sunday school talking about parenting. Uh, You are not the Messiah. Ah, see, you guys fell out of practice. Let's try again. And this isn't just for the parents, it's for everyone. You are not the Messiah. Good job. I can tell you're not the Messiah because the Messiah wouldn't have forgotten that quickly. (laughs) Parents, I need you to listen to me very carefully. And some of the older parents in the room who have kids already out of the house, when I say this, they're going to be like, duh. But, you know, um, parents on the front end may not understand this. We cannot save our children. There is no divinely ordained parenting algorithm for our children's salvation. There's no program where we can plug in the right number of Bible studies and devotionals and spankings and timeouts and prayer times where if we do all of those the right amount in just the right way, our kids will profess faith in Jesus. Let me just tell you practically, I've seen parents do a really lousy job and end up having believing children. Some of y'all in the room are like, yeah, that's me. I didn't know what I was doing, yet my kids, here they are, serving the Lord. And I've seen parents do everything right and have their kids grow up and walk away from the Lord. You cannot baptize your children in the Spirit. Only Jesus can do that. Yeah, you can maybe pressure them to walk down the aisle and to to get baptized, even though you're not sure that they're a Christian. And that can give you a sense of psychic peace, but it won't actually change the heart of your children. Do you understand that? You cannot cleanse your children from within. One of the reasons why having a family seems to be one of the prerequisites of being a pastor, when you look at the qualifications for being an elder, is because you learn that lesson so much you just, you try to get your kids to do right and to, and you just, you try and try and, you know, you can enforce certain attitudes, you can adjust behaviors. Behavior modification is a very important and needed part of parenting. But at the end of the day, even if you get your kids to comply, you can't soften their hearts to actually want to do the thing that you're making them do. Only God can do that. The best way that you can be a good mom and a good dad is to constantly, and I mean constantly, one might even say diligently, point your children away from yourself and point them to Jesus. So when your kids are rebelling against your authority, point them to Jesus. When your kids are acting like little Pharisees who think that they're going to be okay with God just because they obey all of your rules perfectly? Point them to Jesus, because he has something to say about that too. When you don't know what's going on with your kids, you know, your son turned 14 and all of a sudden, what happened, you know? 
He went to bed a little boy, and now there's a, a monster came out of the room. He's got these red dots all over him. He smells like a monster. When your kids are going through it and you don't have the answers and you don't know what to do, you don't know what to say, you have to remember and you have to preach, you have to tell yourself, I am not the Messiah. I can only do what I can do. I can teach them. I can open this Bible. I can try to show them a better way, but at the end of the day, God has to do something in their hearts. Only Jesus has the answer to every question, not you. I don't care how many books you read. I don't care how many articles. I don't, that mommy blog that's just so fantastic, she does not have all the answers. You have to remember that only Jesus can set the perfect example of godliness all the time. Man, that feeling of guilt that you get when you're telling your kids how to live and then you realize that you act in a way that completely contradicts it and you go, man, I wonder what that's going to do to my kids. Well, you're kind of doing what every other parent does. You're trying your best to set a good example, but you're imperfect because you're not the Messiah. Only Jesus can set the perfect example. Only Jesus has complete control of his emotions all the time. Not too long ago, one of my kids came to me in the office and they were saying something for like the 15 millionth time. And I was like, just go away. And then like 10 minutes later, I was like, ah, you know, what kind of dad am I? How could I, how could I let that come out of my mouth? How could I be so uh, abrasive towards my, my children that I love so much? And I wish I would have <laughs> had this sermon in my mind. I could have told myself, okay, that's not okay, and you should do better next time. Also, you're not the Messiah. Good job, Grant. That's why you're an elder, bro. Mm. But you're not the Messiah either. The heart of our parenting endeavor is simple. It's aim to be a faithful witness to Jesus. I had a guy over lunch the other day asked me, what, is, what does success look like for you in parenting? And because this was fresh on, his, on my mind, I just said, I think it means, I think I can say with John the Baptist that I think I've kind of done my job if I can just say I've tried my best to point my kids to Jesus. Now, one of the ways that you can do this most easily, parents, is just by constantly opening the Bible. Just by being quick to just be like, oh, what does God have to say about that? Your kids come and ask you about, hey, this boy in school says that he's a girl now. What do I do? What name do I call her? Let's go to the Bible. Oh, somebody tried to show me something on their phone the other day, or somebody did show me something on their phone the other day. Go to the Bible. You can be like Peter Rogers. His daughter was asking him what, about the nature of human life. He said, oh, we just went back to John from your sermon. That was really helpful. So we just opened up the Bible and went to John chapter 1. Jesus gives life. Whether you're talking about finances or sexuality, whether you're talking about family or education, or anything in between, you can be a faithful witness to your children if you are quick to say, I don't have the answers, but I know someone who does, and he has left us a book where he still speaks to us today. And you're going to mess up, and you're going to forget that, and you're going to do it imperfectly. And when you do, you will tell yourself, I'm not the Messiah. Now let's talk a little bit about marriages. You are not the Messiah. That was a little less enthusiastic. We should be, getting, we should be going up as we go. You should be getting more enthusiastic. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with something in your marriage, which should be anybody who's married, I want you to remember two things. Number one, you're not the only one. And number two, you are not the Messiah. There are a thousand different ways we could apply this one application point to your marriage, but for now, I just want to focus on prayer. I want to focus on prayer because I feel like so often in our marriages, we, we see something in our spouse that we think needs to change. Sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes we're really right. And 
we can forget that even in our marriage, there has to be something more than behavior modification. We have to remember that just like with our children, our spouses act the way they do because of what is in their heart. And if we want to see them change and be better and change that behavior, that action, then what we really need to see in them is a heart change. And let me tell you some things that won't bring about heart change. Nagging will not do it. And neither will bullying. Bribery will not change your spouse's heart, and neither will withholding. The cold shoulder will not fix your marriage, and neither will flattery or fakery. When it comes to issues in our marriage, the only thing that can really change something in your spouse that needs to be changed is God. And yet we try so hard to fix our spouses with our own efforts. If I can just say this thing in this way, and maybe I'll teach them a lesson by doing this and doing that. And you know what we almost never do? Pray. We, we're just so slow to pray and to ask God. And I think part of the reason there is just unbelief. One author writing on prayer says it like this. We won't consistently pray if we're not sure of God's ability. And so much of our failure to pray comes from subtly believing that when God exists, excuse me, that within God exists the possibility of failure. Because of this, we never ask God to do the impossible. Instead, we pursue only the things that we can accomplish in our own strength. Think about how true that is in marriage. I just feel like he's never going to stop doing this. Or he's never going to start leading me like he should. I feel like my wife is never going to support me in this way or she's never going to do that or she's always going to be like this. And we just feel like it's impossible and yet we still try to fix it because we can't, it drives us crazy. And yet we almost never pray, which is really just going to God and saying, hey God, can you fix this? Now I want to let that indictment stand. This is true, I think, of, of everyone in our marriages. I want to take a moment to encourage women in the church. I don't know why. Actually, I do know why. Let me take that back. Men are doers. We're fixers. You guys remember that commercial? Lady has a nail in her head. She's complaining to her husband about having a headache. Her husband goes, well, just pull the nail out. She goes, you don't listen to me. I just want to tell you about how bad my head hurts. He goes, oh, geez. Husbands are, I just want to help you fix the problem. Right? Right? And because men can be so action-oriented, we are just so easily inclined to, and if we have an issue in our marriage, feel like, I can do this. We're like Tim the Toolman Taylor in Home Improvement. I don't need help. I'll fix it myself. Am I dating myself with that reference? But women, they're not quite like that. There's a, there's a sense in which women are more inclined to just say, you know what, I, I don't know that I can fix this. And what that leads them to is to be much quicker to pray, to be fervent in prayer. I can think about my own marriage, my own wife, how often she's told me after the fact that she's been praying about something and then God answered that prayer. And I've just heard story after story about faithful women who were in relationships with men who just couldn't quite figure this thing out and they tried this and they tried that and so... Finally, they just prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And even when it seems like God wasn't going to answer their prayer, they continued to pray and pray and pray. And sometimes they pray for eight days. Sometimes they pray for eight months. Sometimes they pray for eight years. And then God moves. That prayer is an expression of dependence. It's a recognition of the power of God and our lack of power. Every time you pray and ask God to fix something in your marriage, you are telling him, okay, I'm not the Messiah. I cannot fix this. Only you can. So women, thank you for setting the example in prayer. Thank you for loving us and in that way leading us so well. Let's talk a little bit about ministry now. I think this truth applies to a thousand different ministry endeavors. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, Sean... I'm not in the ministry, then you might have misunderstood our whole thing at Sixth Avenue. 
Because everyone who is a Christian has a ministry, right? Do you have the Holy Spirit? You say yes. And then uh, do you have gifts from the Spirit that are used to edify the body? Yes. Well, then you have a ministry. It may not be as public as mine. You may not get paid like I do, but you have a ministry. You may not have an office like Spencer or Tim or Grant, but you have a ministry. This is off my notes, but I just want to point out once again, do you guys notice that on a Sunday morning we don't have professionals up here? I mean, Luke's on staff now. He's hardly a professional. He's not making professional money, I'll tell you that. (laughs) In our Sunday school, Grant taught Sunday school. Jacob and Mac are up here playing instruments. They're not professionals. Andrew prayed for us, right? Our sister Devin read scripture for us. They're not professionals. All right, rant over. But they do have a ministry. Now rant over. Think about evangelism for a moment. Think about how this truth applies to our evangelism. I remember coming home as a young Christian after being out all night trying to do street evangelism, and I would come home crushed because nobody got saved. You know, I'm out there sharing the gospel with all all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, and nobody gets saved. Why was I crushed? Well, because I had come to believe the subtle lie that if I could just say the right things in the right way, that I could actually bring people to salvation. I had come to believe that I'm the one who can take away the sins of the world. I would have never said it, but I think my reaction proved that to be true. I look back on those painful nights of confusion, and I thank God that I didn't succeed, because if I would have, it might have reinforced some of that poor way of thinking. I think this is important to remember when I hear about guys who say that they want to transform a denomination They want to reform. They want to stay in this really unhealthy denomination because they think that they can fix it from the inside out. Well, setting aside for a moment the fact that nobody has ever done that. uh, Two, I think that's like having a bit of a Messiah complex. You think about it with a local church. You can't save a dying church. You can't do that. Now, you may be thinking, well, Sean, isn't that what happened at Sixth Avenue? No. I didn't save this church. Grant didn't save this church. I could point to any number of different people who were here who were part of that process. We didn't save this church. Jesus did. And I'm not being trite when I say that. Oh, it wasn't me. It was Jesus. I'm dead serious. Jesus had to change people's hearts in this body to save this church. He had to take away some sin. He had to establish his lordship And there was a lot of pointing away from us and pointing to him. Some of the deepest shame that I have felt as a pastor of Sixth Avenue has been when I've recounted the story of God's grace in the life of our church. And and I've had someone come up to me afterwards and say, hey, the way that you told that story kind of made it sound like you saved the church. You kind of sounded like you're the one who did it all. I mean, it just cut me to the core. That's not what I've intended to say, but, but maybe what came out of my mouth revealed what was in my heart. Maybe, maybe there was a little bit of a Messiah complex. Maybe I, I did believe the hype about myself. And I shouldn't. If that's true, I was being a bad witness. Now, let me cut myself some slack. I went back and reread a sermon this week from this time four years ago when I first got to the church. And uh, I didn't even know that I was going to be making this point in my sermon. I was going back to try to explore a different theological matter that I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I don't have to wrestle through this again. Maybe I've already done that. Uh, but this is what I found there, okay? Speaking to the church... One Sunday morning, right when I first got here, there were probably like 11 people in the room. I said, meditate on this truth. Meditate on the attribute of God's faithfulness as you consider the life of this church. This church was at one time a large and prosperous church, at least by pre-megachurch standards. I can't speak to the spiritual health of the church then because I wasn't there, but the pews were full 
and people seem to have come to Christ in this church. But for various reasons, this church has declined substantially over the years. The turnover rate of pastors has been high. The giving has been low. The number of members have dipped precariously low. From a church split to a deteriorating church building, perhaps you've looked around and wondered if God has removed his lampstand from this church. Maybe you've wondered if God has forgotten 6th Avenue. I want you to know that I don't think that he has. From the faithful service of several members of the congregation to the leadership of men like Grant who have stepped in to preach when there wasn't a pastor to do so, not to mention the many miracles of providence that have taken place all in order for me to come and serve as your pastor and all the other evidences of grace that I can mention, I truly believe that God has not forgotten this church. When I read that excerpt, what stands out to me immediately is the way that I just constantly emphasized what God has done in this church, what God must do in the life of this church. God's grace, God's will, God's providence, God's faithfulness, God as the giver of life. Friends, an unhealthy church shouldn't surprise us. That sort of thing happens. God's people are a mess throughout the entire history of salvation. But we only compound the problem when we look to ourselves, when we look to our denominational history, when we look to one supreme leader, when we look to the most popular deacon in the church, when we look to those who run the good old boy club, when we look to anything other than Jesus to fix the mess. Even in the life of the church, we are not the Messiah. Now let's talk a little bit about politics. You are not the Messiah. Think about what a Messiah does. A Messiah is not just a spiritual leader. A Messiah is Lord over all the earth. He's the sovereign king of the universe. And the promise of the Messiah is that he will come and establish God's perfect rule and reign on the earth. He will right every wrong. He will remedy every injustice. Now, implicit in this truth is the idea that I, you, cannot fix this world. We cannot repair this broken system. We cannot establish the perfect God-ruled government. Utopianism is out. Do you remember when Jesus said that the poor will always be with us? In saying that, he wasn't just talking about poverty. In saying that, Jesus is telling us that the effects of the fall will always be with us until he finally fixes everything. So what that means is that corrupt judges, greedy CEOs, slimy lobbyists, crooked cops, closeted racists, political tyrants, sleazy corporate lawyers, and the biased media will always be with us. And so we must have measured expectations as we engage with this world's systems, including politics. Politics can be a good thing, especially in America. Praise God. I'm super thankful to live in America. Politics can allow us to have a, a real active role in loving our neighbor through the political system. But the problem comes when we exalt politics and we make it an ultimate thing rather than a good thing, right? It's when we get to the place where we think that if everyone would just listen to me and just read my Facebook posts, this world would be a lot better. It's bad when we look at certain political figures as if they hold the keys to utopia. They don't. Think about Barack Obama's campaign. It's a message of hope. And then right there, above hope, his picture. Everything that's wrong with this country, I can fix it. And a lot of people believe that. And then after Barack Obama, you have Donald Trump who comes and he just sells the same kind of thing, just a different version of it. The essence of it is the same. Believe in me. I'll get, what you, I'll get what you really want out of this country. I can fix things. Make America great again. You see what I'm saying? I can restore things to how they're supposed to be. 
Neither one of those men are the Messiah. As Christians, we may have disagreements about the best way to point to Christ in the public square, but one thing that we should all have in common is a desire to do so. Is as we interact in the public square, if we feel led to do that, that we point away from ourselves and we point to Jesus as the solution for everything that's ailing us. I want you to just stop and think about how dangerous politics can be for the Christian soul. I don't know what God has called you to, but if you're thinking, Sean, I think I might want to go into politics. I want to be a city councilman. I want to help the city of Decatur deal with its street pavement problems. By the way, if anyone can explain to me why we're repaving 6th Avenue, I would love to know that. It seemed like it was perfectly fine. But anyways, maybe I'll run for city councilman and get to the bottom, bottom of it. But, you know, think about what you have to become in order to do that. Think about what a politician does. The essence of what they do, their ministry, is this. I have the answers. Everything's bad right now, but I'm the one you've been waiting for. I've read all the right books, I've studied all the right things, I have all the right philosophy of government, and I can fix this, I can heal this land, I can save us. You have to take on a sort of messianic complex to even get into that business. How dangerous is that? How, how out of line with that is what we see in John the Baptist's ministry this morning? There's more that can be said, but I'm, I'm running long, let me move on. This will be the last little piece of our application. You are not the Messiah. Messiah. No one in this room would ever say, I'm the Messiah, I think. But that doesn't mean that you don't live like you think somehow, some way that you are the Messiah. For me, it was in my ministry. Maybe there was a little hint of that at 6th Avenue. But it's, it's not just me. There's a little legalist in all of us. And there's a little Messiah complex, a little God complex in every single one of us. We get it from our father Adam and our mother Eve. You remember after they fell in the, God, after they fell in the garden, their first thing that they did was not run to God and ask him to fix the situation. The first thing that they did was hide themselves and then try to make fig leaf underwear. You saw how that turned out. But we're all tempted to believe the subtle lie that says, I can fix my own sin problem. I can repair my relationship with God. Especially in the Christian South, we might believe that if we do all the right religious things in all the right ways, that we can can fix this. We think that baptism can save us. We think that going to church can save us. We think that doing church work days, that's real bonus points right there. That'll save us. I came up on a Saturday? Come on, Jesus. We think that giving to the church can save us. We think that being at all the Bible studies, oh, I'm not just there on Sundays. I'm there on Wednesdays. I'm there for Sunday school. We think that Achieving a position in the church like being a deacon or an elder or a small group leader or a Sunday school teacher can save us. Religiously reading our Bible, praying constantly, giving good gifts to the pastor, (laughs) that can save us. You may not realize it, but your whole approach to what it looks like to follow God could, could be very much out of line with what you're supposed to be as you follow God. The hymn that we're going to sing here in a minute, it's called Not In Me. It says this, and I can't say it. I can't say it better than this hymn. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, No lifted hands, no tearful song. Doctrine people, this is for you. No recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot 
cause my soul to live. It's my great hope for you this morning that you understand that. That you are not the Messiah. That you cannot cause your soul to live. You can get the outside of your body wet. You can do a whole bunch of outside the body kinds of things. And that's what we're good at in the Christian South. But you cannot baptize your own heart with the Holy Spirit. That's for you here this morning if you don't identify as a Christian. And that's here for you this morning if you are a Christian and you've just misunderstood the gospel. We have to look away from ourselves and look to Jesus. I hope we all understand that the reason why Jesus had to come as a Messiah, the reason why he had to die on the cross to save us is because we couldn't save ourselves. The whole story of the Bible is full of men and women who tried to fix their own broken relationship with God in their own power, tried to do all the right religious things to to fix their relationship with God in their own strength according to their own wisdom. And guess what? They all fail, every last one of them. The only time they get it right is when they give up and give themselves over to the love of God. Listen to the rest of the hymn. After talking about all the things we can't do, the hymn now goes like this. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was born by him, and he alone can give me rest. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us rest this morning. The rest of trying to be like you, the rest of being able to get away from that, to trust that we can't be you. Help us to carry the easy burden the burden where we point away from ourselves and point to your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.